everyone. Welcome back to the podcast from Mount Hope's Belmont location in Belmont, Massachusetts. My name is Brian. I pastor that location, and it is good to talk to you again. No matter who you are and no matter where you come from, all of us face problems, challenges, and trials in life that sometimes we just can't see coming. The question we're going to deal with today is how do we face those trials? Perhaps more importantly, if you call yourself a follower of Jesus, how do you face those trials as a Christian? Well, today we start a new series in the book of James. And at the beginning of his book, James has a lot to say about how we should look at problems and challenges in this life. So I hope you listen closely, and I hope you enjoy this, because I believe that God has something he would like to say to you. If you want to, if you have a Bible with you, I'd invite you to open it up to the book of James. If you've been with us over the last few months, that's, uh, even though it's still a J word, that's a, that's a whole new book for us. We have been in the Gospel of John uh, since Easter and Palm Sunday, and so now we are moving into spending the next four weeks in the book of James. So there's Bibles in the rows in front of you. Uh, a few of the verses will be up on the screen, but not all of them, so I'd invite you to follow along with us, whether you open up an app on your phone that has the Bible or whether you grab one of those Bibles that's in front of you. If you do take one of them and you're not quite sure exactly where James is, probably the easiest way is to start at the very back of the book. You have Revelation as the last book of the Bible and you work your way backwards. If you hit the book of Hebrews, you've gone too far. But right in there uh, after the book of Hebrews is the book of James. Now, here's something that I think is, is true of all of us. Here's something I think uh, is true of all of us. All of us, we really would like to, wouldn't we, we'd really like to live the good life. You might define that differently. You might define the good life differently. But all of us would like to live the good life. And I want you to think for a moment, how do you define the good life? What does that look like for you? What would the good life be? Our Definitions of that, our pictures of that, might be different from person to person and row to row here, but I bet that for all of us, the good life involves a lack of challenges or a lack of trials. I bet for all of us, whether the good life looks like being in the mountains next to a lake or the good life looks like being on a beach next to the ocean, whatever the differences are in those things, the good life probably includes a lack of stress, a lack of trial, and a lack of problems in life. That's really what we want, isn't it? We work towards that. That's, that's what we're working towards throughout life. How can we minimize pain? How can we minimize problems? How can we minimize trial? That's what we want. Now, the problem is, as you well know, no matter how hard we try and no matter how hard we work, trials come, don't they? Things happen. Problems pop up that we never saw coming. And no matter how hard we work, no matter how much money we save, no matter how hard we endeavor to avoid trials and live the good life, trials come. There's, uh, there's these posters that you may have seen before. They're called successories. You've seen them in doctor's offices or dentist's office or maybe in the conference room at your work. They have one of these on the wall. And most of them are some, uh, some inspiring phrase. Well, there's actually a company that makes the opposite of those.
hard sometimes, but I never thought it would be this difficult for this long. I think all of us have felt like that at some point. And here's the other challenge. If you're someone that calls yourself a follower of Jesus, here's the other challenge you have. For all of us, whether you call yourself a a Christian or not, we want to live this good life and avoid stress, avoid challenges, get rid of problems. But if you're a Christian, if you're a follower of Jesus, here's the other challenge that you're wrestling with in your mind. Is Some of us, the whole reason we started to follow Jesus is because someone promised us that if we had problems in life and trials in life, all we needed to do was say a prayer and put our trust in Jesus, and all of those trials and all of those problems would go away. That's how this whole thing was sold to us. It was packaged and sold to us that if you have problems, trust Jesus, no problems. That's how it was sold to us. So we did that. And what did you find out? You found out that not only did you still have the same problems and trials as everybody else, but now because you decided to become a Christian, you had a whole new set of challenges and trials that no one else has, that other people don't have. Because now you had to deal with the fact that your family thought you had made a bad decision. Or now you had to deal with the fact that friends and coworkers lost respect in you because you became one of those people who trusted in Jesus. Now you had to deal with, with some of the, the problems that can come with being a person of faith. And so for those of us who say we follow Jesus, if, we're, if we come into this whole thing thinking, if I follow Jesus, trials and problems will go away, it's a very challenging thing that we have to deal with when trials and challenges continue to occur. So what are we supposed to do about all of that. Well, this morning we start a four-week series through the book of James, and really we're only going to spend our time in James chapter 1. In four weeks, we can't get much further than that, and I think we're even pushing it to get through James chapter 1 in four weeks because there's so much here. But we're going to go through James chapter 1 together, and then in the future we'll come back and talk about other aspects of the book of James. But if we were to sum up the book of James uh, quickly... James is written by Jesus' brother, James, and he's a late convert. Everything we know says that he's a late convert to trusting in Jesus as the Messiah. And you maybe can imagine if you grew up and your brother, when he was older, decided to tell you that he was the Messiah. Might be tough to believe. It was for James too. But later we read that after Jesus rose from the dead, that James put his trust in Jesus Christ. And so he writes this book as a late convert. And the thing that James is, is, most, um, is, is most focused on is that our faith should be something that makes sense in the real world. That our faith shouldn't just be something that's, that's up here in our minds and in our thoughts in the clouds, but it should be something that is lived out, that affects the way we live our day-to-day life. In fact, in James chapter 2, verse 14 and then 17, this is what James says. He says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? And then he says in verse 17, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. And this is James' big, uh, big focus, that our faith shouldn't be just something we say we believe in. It should be something that is lived out and something that we do. And so I like the the book of James. It's an important book because it helps us understand how our faith is to be lived out day to day, which is something that we all need. And James, as he starts this book, is writing to a very specific group of people, a very specific group of people. And I think it's important that we understand who these people are because it will help us understand how all that James is saying applies to us. 
Look at what he says in James chapter 1, verse 1. James chapter 1, verse 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Now, who are the 12 tribes in the dispersion? Well, here's what happened. We're going to back up a little bit. Here's what happened very quickly. A few hundred years before this time, before Jesus came, and if you've been with us uh, over the years here at Mount Hope, maybe you can remember back to our series on the Minor Prophets, and we talked about all of this. The Jewish people, God's people, the Israelites, were taken into exile by different empires, people like the Assyrians and the Babylonians. And while we don't have time to necessarily get back into all of that, what was the result of that is that the Jewish people were scattered all over the known world. So they were dispersed over the known world. So the Jews were not just living in and around the city of Jerusalem and in Israel anymore, but they were now living around the Mediterranean Sea, into Asia Minor, and sometimes into Europe. And so the Jews had been scattered or dispersed throughout the known world in that area. And then what happens is a few hundred years later, when the church is born and Jesus comes and dies and raises again, and now you have people in the New Testament church is that the Christians, the Jewish people that became Christians, began to be persecuted. Not only by by Rome, by the empire, but also by the Jewish leaders of the day. So the Christians are being persecuted, and what happens? The Christians living in and around Jerusalem and in Israel, they also scatter. And they go out to some of the same places. They go to those areas around the Mediterranean. They go to those areas in Asia Minor. They go into those areas in Europe because they're looking for refuge. They're looking for asylum. They're looking to escape the persecution. Now, when these Jews who had started to follow Christ got to the place where they were trying to seek asylum, what they found was they just received greater and more persecution. So the Jews living in that area did not receive them well. The non-Jews in that area did not receive them well. And they became very quickly economic and racial and social outcasts. And so James is writing to these people. The people who have trusted in Jesus and now have experienced a great trial, a great problem as they've scattered to avoid persecution and only found that no one will take them in. And they are persecuted even more. What advice would James give these people who are going through great trial and great persecution? This is what he says to them in verse two through, verses 2 through 4. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in Nothing. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. That's interesting advice James gives to these people who are lost with no home and who are experiencing persecution. Why would he tell them to count this all joy? I would not be joyful in that moment. I don't know how you would feel. But James gives them this piece of advice, and the question is why? Why would James say this to them? 
There's a song that came out a few years ago, and if you listen to any Christian music, maybe you've heard it. It's uh, by an, an artist named Laura Story, and the song is called Blessings. And in that song, she asks a little question, and she says, what if the trials of this life are your, and she's talking about God, what if the trials of this life are God's mercies in disguise? And I think one thing that James is saying here is that trials in this life are indeed God's mercies in disguise. And what I want us to think about is I want us to notice, too, what James is not saying. James does not say to these people, be happy and throw a party when life goes bad. That's not what he's saying. He doesn't say, put a smile on your face and pretend like everything is okay when life is its most difficult. That's not what he's saying. But he is reminding us of a truth a truth that is an important truth for you and I as believers to know and understand. And what James is reminding us is that God does his best work in the most difficult times. God does his best work in the most difficult times. For a while. If you're someone that's walked with him for a while, when have you learned the most about who he is and who you are? When have you seen God come through and do the biggest things? When have you found yourself relying on God the most and in your most intimate moments with him? Has it been during the great times of life when everything's okay and things just seem to sail along? Or has it been through the difficult times? I think that most of us who follow Jesus would say it has been in the hardest time that we've learned the most about who God is and who we are. And that's because trial and pressure and stress and pain, they do two things for us. The first thing they do is they force us to pay attention. It is so easy when life is good, things are fine, and it's all flowers and ice cream and puppy dogs to forget who we are and who God is. But there's something about pain, and there's something about trial, and there's something about struggle that wakes us up and forces us to pay attention to who God is. The great author and philosopher C.S. Lewis, he said it this way. After his wife passed away, he wrote a book called The Problem of Pain. And in that book, as he was struggling with It's not necessarily that God causes the trial or that God causes the pain, but when it happens, God infuses it with purpose and uses it to wake us up to the reality of who he is. And so I think the first reason that James would say God does his best work in the most difficult times is because pain forces us to pay attention. But here's the other thing that pain does for you and for me. Pain, if we trust in Jesus, if we follow him, begins a process that is so important in our lives. It begins a process that is so important in our lives. Let me, let me tell you how this works. As we were thinking about this this week and how, how tr- trouble and trial affects our faith, we thought about how strength training works and how muscle is built and Pastor Rick and I, Pastor Rick is our senior pastor, our Burlington location pastor. We reached out to, to Scott Mulgard, who's a part of this congregation here. Scott is uh, 
participates in strongman competitions. You know, the ones that sometimes you see on ESPN2 at like 10 at night, uh, guys pulling cars and lifting up boulders. Scott does that sort of thing. And we asked Scott, we said, tell us about what it's like to, to build muscle and how it relates to faith. And Scott said this. He said, every single one of us, you and me, have strength inside of us that we can either choose to access or not access. Every single one of us has strength in our muscles that often is left unaccessed. And the only way to access that strength is to what? The only way to access that strength is to put the muscle under stress and under trial. And if you put the muscle under stress and trial over a long enough period of time, the body will create tissue to deal with the strain, and the muscle will be stronger than before. And you'll have access to strength that you always had access to, but could not have experienced if you didn't walk through the struggle. It's the same way with faith. James says that a trial initiates a process that, that moves us to steadfastness, and that steadfastness moves us to being perfect and complete. The same thing happens with faith. If life is good and the faith muscle is never flexed or strained or stressed, we will always, we will never experience the full strength of the faith that is available to us. But faith under trial, faith under trouble, faith under pressure, when that faith is flexed and stressed, we emerge with a stronger faith than we would ever have otherwise. Think about the people who have the most life experience that you know that are strongest in faith. The people that have walked with God for decades. When trouble happens in life, have you ever gone to someone like that and tried to explain your problems? The problems that seem so big and so huge and you're not quite sure how it's going to happen. And you go to someone like that and you say, there's not enough money to cover all the bills at the end of this month. Or, or we're not sure exactly what's going to happen with our children. Or, or we're not sure exactly what's going to happen with our relationship. And that person looks back at you and says something like, God will take care of it. Just trust me. God will take care of it. Do you know why they're able to say that? It's not because they don't care, and it's not because they don't think your problems are, are not big. It's because they know. Because over the 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years they've walked with Jesus, they have seen God do things in their own life when they face the pressure, when they face the pain, when they face the trial, when they face the struggle, and they know that if you trust God through it, he will get you through it. That kind of faith is not built flippantly. That kind of faith is built in the middle of the fire. It's like when an oyster gets a grain of sand inside of its shell. There's an irritation there, and the oyster begins to cover that irritation over and over and over again until what is formed? A pearl. Every irritation in your life is an opportunity for a pearl of faith to be formed if you will trust God through it. And James says there is this big process that initiates in your life. When you enter into trial, it helps you to pay attention, and it starts this process, with you, process which, from which you will emerge with a stronger faith than ever before. And if you want to get through it, how in the world do you act in the midst of that trial? 
Everyone in this room, I can tell you you're one of three places. You're in this room today and you're either coming out of a trial, you're in this room today and you're in a trial, or you're in this room and I can promise you you're about to go into a trial. All of us are in that place. And so what do you do when you find yourself in that place? James tells us two things, two things to do. And they're right here in these next few verses. The first thing we do is in verses five through eight. This is what he says. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. And James, if I was going to sum this up, I think he comes to us and says something along these lines. When you're in the middle of the trial, work hard to stop asking why questions and start asking what questions. I don't know what trial you're going through this morning. And I know that in this room this morning, even though it's not the largest group ever assembled, there are some serious things happening. I can look through the faces and the rows of people here this morning. (laughs) There is a lot going on. And none of it's easy. And the question that you have this morning for God is why? Why? Why did that person die? Why am I in this position? Why did that relationship end? Why is my spouse? Why are my kids? Why is my job? Why, why, why? And here's the thing. I don't know. I wish I knew. I wish I had the answer for, for you. I wish, I wish uh, this book gave me the answer for any and every sp- uh, specific situation. I wish you could find the answer for each and every situation. And the question of why, I, I don't know. The way the Bible puts it is now we see dimly. But once this world is over, we'll see plainly. I think maybe one day we will understand why some things happened the way they did. But right now, I don't see in whole. I just see in part. And I don't know the answer to that question why. And James comes to us and he says, as you're walking through the trial, don't come to God and say, God, why, why, why? Come to God and say what? Okay, God, what is the wisdom you have for me? What is it that you want me to learn? What are you teaching me about who you are? What do you want me to do? And if we come and approach God with those sorts of questions, all of a sudden purpose will be infused as we participate in the process. Here's the second thing James tells us about dealing with trial. He says it in verse 9. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flowers fall and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. And the second thing I think James is saying to us, not only is he saying stop asking the why question and start asking what questions, he's saying no matter what your position right now, Poor, rich, happy, sad, 
Evaluate your temporary situation in light of eternal reality. Evaluate your temporary situation in light of eternal reality. If you're poor today, Christ, you are promised an eternity with him. Are you rich today? Be careful that you don't get too settled in that place. Because that too is temporary. And you want to make sure that you're working not for the things of this world, but for the next. So I don't know what trial you're facing today. But I would encourage you to consider it joy. Not because it's fun, but because God is doing a work in your life if you'll let him. So come to God and ask him the what question. Evaluate what you're walking through. It's a temporary situation in light of eternal realities and who God is and who Jesus Christ is and what God promises you. At the end of the day, what James is saying to you and me is that a faith untested is a faith unfinished. If we want our faith to be strong, if we want it to be built up and complete, It must be given the chance to grow as we see God work, even when life is difficult. And James says to you and to me, a faith untested is a faith unfinished. So be joyful in the Lord when you go through the difficult time. You know, knowing Jesus and following him, and I'll invite our worship team to come forward as we prepare to close this morning. Knowing Jesus and following him does not give us a pass on trials in this life, but it does bring purpose to those trials. Listen to that this morning. Following Jesus and being in relationship with him does not give us a pass on trials, but it does bring purpose to those trials. God sent his son Jesus who suffered greatly on this earth for you and for me and did it so that we might have the promise of relationship with God and the promise of eternal life. And so even though there are times that life might, be, might not be fun and even though the trial is difficult because we know Jesus Christ, there is purpose and meaning even in the midst of the trial because of who he is. This is the way the writer of Hebrews puts it in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. He's saying that we are to look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him. think about someone like a man named Rob McDonough. He gave me permission this morning to share his story. Rob attends our Burlington campus. In 2007, just a couple months into being a minister full-time, we got a call at the church, and it was from Rob's family. Their son, David, their firstborn son, David, who was 20 years old, had died in an accident. And they asked us to come do the funeral. It was one of the more devastating funerals that 
that we've been a part of. And what do you say? There's not much you can say. So we tried to offer hope and we, we sort of stumbled through that funeral service. But now 11 years later, here's what Rob will tell you. That even though he's not happy that this happened in his life, that even though the thought of it does not make him joyful and, if, and, and he wasn't glad that he went through it, God did the best work in his life through that situation. 11 years later, Rob has sat and counseled three other fathers whose firstborn sons passed away far too early and helped bring them closer to the Lord. And even now, as he sits in the middle of his own terminal cancer diagnosis today, Rob is joyful in the Lord because of what he's seen him do in the midst of trial. It makes me think, too, of a man who in 1873 penned the words of a very famous song. In 1871, Horatio Spafford was a very wealthy man with a beautiful wife and four daughters. But in 1871 was the great fire in Chicago, and in that fire, he lost all of his wealth. And so he put his wife and his four daughters on a boat back to England with what little money they had left. And he stayed in Chicago to try and tie up the end of his affairs. And while they were crossing the Atlantic Ocean, that boat sank. And his four daughters passed away. And his wife, who was saved, sent him a telegram from England that just said two words, saved alone. In 1873, Horatio Spafford got on a boat to go towards England. And he asked the captain of his boat if he would tell him the exact spot where the ship went down, where his daughters had gone home to be with the Lord. And when they got to that spot, Horatio Spafford pulled out paper and pen and wrote these words. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Though Satan should buffet, those trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. No matter what you're going through this morning, no matter what you're facing, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you can boldly declare it is well with your soul, not because life is great today, but because of who he is. He is your savior who suffered and died for you that you might have life and relationship with him, not only here, but for all of eternity. So I don't know what trial you're facing today, but consider it joy. God is at work doing a process in you and in your heart that will allow you to emerge with stronger faith than ever before. And know that if God didn't love you, he wouldn't let you go through it. Because faith untested is faith unfinished. 
In just a moment, we're going to close this time together. And we're going to sing a more modern song that was inspired by that old hymn, It Is Well. And as we do, you have an opportunity to reflect on the trial that you are facing today. And whether you want to come up here and kneel at this altar, whether you want to stay in your seat, whether you want to come up to the side to be prayed for, and our elder Bill Sullivan and I will be up here to pray with you. Take this time to reflect on the thing that you are facing and trust God through it. Would you stand with me as we close this morning? God, we don't know why things happen, but through it all, we, our eyes will be on you, and through it all, we will say it is well with our soul. Move in these moments, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's sing together. Hey, thanks again for listening to the podcast from Mount Hope's Belmont location. At Mount Hope, we gather in Belmont every Sunday at 10 a.m. and in Burlington at 9 a.m. and 11 a.m. Each week that we gather, we do so to learn more about God, grow in our love of Him and others, and then we go to live lives driven by faith. If you live in the Burlington or Belmont, Massachusetts areas, we'd love for you to join us on a Sunday. You can learn more about us by visiting our website at mounthope.org, M-O-U-N-T-H-O-P-E dot O-R-G, or follow us on Twitter or Instagram at Belmont. Thanks again for joining us, and we look forward to having you listen again next week.